0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Susanna Sirkin, the Director of Policy and a Senior Advisor at Physicians for Human Rights, where she has worked since 1987. From 1992 to 2001, she served as a member of the Coordination Committee of the International Campaign to Ban Landmines, which was the co recipient of the 1997 Nobel Prize for Peace. Sirkin oversees PHR is policy engagement, including with the United Nations, domestic and international justice systems, and human rights coalitions. She has organized health and human rights investigations in dozens of countries documenting genocide and systematic rape in Darfur, Sudan, exhumations of mass graves in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, attacks on healthcare facilities in Syria, Yemen, and other war zones, in Saddam Hussein's use of chemical weapons against Iraqi Kurds in the 1980s. In July of 2019 and again last year, she addressed the UN Security Council about the deliberate targeting of hospitals in Syria. Serkin has initiated programs to train doctors, lawyers, law enforcement officers, and judges to respond to sexual violence in conflict zones in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Iraq, and Kenya and has authored and edited numerous reports and articles on the medical consequences of human rights violations, physical evidence of human rights abuses, and physician complicity in violations. So Susanna, welcome to Delving In.
1: Thank you, it's really an honor to be here with you, Stuart.
0: That's that's quite a resume, I have to say. Very impressive, and I uh, watched your video footage of your address to the UN Security Council. It was quite an impassioned and articulate speech that you gave to them. One can only hope that it did some good.
1: We hope so, but one never knows. It's a complicated institution, and uh, many people consider it to be a bit paralyzed these days.
0: So I have a a kind of a pre-interview question in a sense. I think it would be helpful to understand the difference between two similar-sounding organizations, uh, Physicians for Human Rights and Physicians for Social Responsibility. And I know that you've had founding members who have been on both, at least one, uh, Jack Geiger, Uh, Explain to us what the difference is between those two.
1: Well, Physicians for Human Rights was founded later than Physicians for Social Responsibility, and indeed people uh, in the public and especially health professionals do confuse us sometimes. PSR, uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility, was founded really as a response to the threat of nuclear war during the continuing Cold War period, where the idea of let's say, mutually assured destruction between the Soviet Union and the United States was truly a threat and a group of mostly doctors decided to interact with their counterparts in the Soviet Union and organize discussions as well as presentations around the health consequences of a true nuclear war. And since that time, PSR has mobilized on other issues, including gun control, uh, looking at guns as a public health threat and so forth, but largely focused on the threat of nuclear war. Physicians for Human Rights was founded in 1986 to look at the health consequences of human rights violations and is really working since that time in the context of international human rights law and humanitarian law so it's actually quite different from psr although many of the doctors who started our organization back then in the 1980s were inspired to contribute and be active in both organizations but we really do work in a in different contexts different countries and under different terms in effect i would say but i have a great respect for that organization as well and of course i work at physicians for human rights and i'm really happy to talk more about that work with you today
0: so let's talk now about your background and the history of uh, physicians for human rights and your role in that history which is most of the history quite a quite a big chunk of it (laughs) Um, and the two i imagine are quite intertwined So this is a question that I think probably deserves a fairly lengthy answer, so don't feel like you have to squeeze it in.
1: Well, I have had a long standing passion for human rights going back, I think even to my childhood. My father was a US diplomat and we lived overseas uh, for many years. For most of my childhood, I lived in South India for three years between the ages of eight and 11. And I spent all of my high school years in Athens, Greece, which at the time between 1967 when we arrived and 1972 when we left and I graduated from high school, Greece was under a military dictatorship. My father was very concerned about human rights in those days. And as a teenager, I used to hear him talk about people even in on his staff who were Greek who were arrested sometimes in the middle of the night other dissidents, or even journalists, academics, artists, writers, musicians, political party members who were detained and tortured. And so I was aware of the impact of human rights violations surrounding me in the context of a dictatorial regime. And when I came back to the United States, when people asked me where I was from, I would often say, sort of everywhere and nowhere. And I thought of myself as a, I guess, a citizen of the world. Uh, In those days, we weren't too thrilled about what the US was doing and its foreign policy. And my mother was also an activist in her earlier years and she had been a member of the Student World Federalists all the way back in the 1940s with a group that was, advocating for world government and for the formation of the United Nations. And of course, the whole human rights struggle in the 20th century emerged along with the founding of the United Nations and in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And as a Jew uh, and someone who was brought up by my parents and in my community with strong Jewish values, as well as the history of the Holocaust, I had a deep passion for preserving the rights and dignity of all people. And that stemmed from both my religious education as well as my family history. And so in the 1970s, late 1970s, I went as many other people like me did to visit the Soviet Union and to interact and actually uh, share learning and books with the refuseniks, who were Jews who were trying to leave the Soviet Union and were prevented from doing so by severe restrictions on the right to freedom of movement, in effect, or the right to leave one's country by that the government at that time. And during that trip, a friend of mine who was an academic in Boston had suggested that not only should I visit Jews in the Jewish community who were denied visas and had lost their jobs and were threatened, some of them with imprisonment, but also to interact with some of the more generic dissidents in the scientific community in particular, who were the leaders of the Soviet human rights movement at the time. So I interacted with a number of these scientists, and they were people who were around the great physicist Andrei Sakharov, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his activism and his work for peace and human rights. And these scientists were not only working to promote human rights in their own country, but they were interacting with dissidents in Chile and Argentina and South Africa. And I was just so impressed by that work when I came back to the States. I immediately joined Amnesty International and I started to work in Cambridge, Massachusetts with a small group working to free political prisoners. And I pretty much got hooked. And from that time on, I've been a human rights activist, if you will. I started out as a volunteer, very connected to the human rights movement in the United States and globally. And just by great fortune, I was invited to join the staff of Amnesty International in the early 1980s. And during those four years when I lived in New York and also traveled around the United States organizing for the human rights movement, I um, learned a huge amount about human rights and particularly about the role that doctors and psychologists and public health professionals could play in the human rights movement. And that work, I think, led just in a very synergistic way to my connection with the founders of Physicians for Human Rights, where I've worked ever since. And it's been an extremely emotional, inspiring, challenging, frightening, traumatic, and ultimately uplifting 35 years for me, interacting with some of the most courageous human rights leaders in the world, and especially seeing the incredible power and influence and skill that doctors, psychologists, and public health experts, as well as forensic scientists can bring to documenting human rights violations, to understanding and illuminating the deep physical and psychological trauma that occurs in the face of torture, sexual violence, killing, disappearances, the many issues that we've worked on. And of course, you mentioned the international campaign to ban landmines being part of that effort and bringing the medical voice to that effort is probably one of the most extraordinary moments in in my life and I I know in the life of many of our colleagues who worked in, in this massive campaign, which resulted in literally the banning of the most widely used conventional weapon and one of the cheapest ones in the world. That threatened the lives and bodies of millions and millions of people on every continent. So I feel very privileged to have been able to do this work as, as my job.
0: So I'm wondering if you could think of a, a, a story or two about your travels, because I, I mentioned that you don't just sit in an office. <laughs> You know that you're tra- traveling to many parts of the world and meeting with the actors on the ground, uh, whether it's uh, activists or victims. So what are some of the, one or two of the more memorable, and there are probably many, episodes in your career?
1: We haven't been able to travel much during the past two years, which has been really challenging because so much of the work of Physicians for Human Rights involves interacting very closely with our colleagues and partners and doing deep documentation that requires face-to-face interactions interviews but also literally clinical work examining and evaluating the bodies and minds of people who have been threatened and uh, violated there are so many stories i'll I'll just give one or two examples that come to mind and, and maybe two different ones some of our earliest work at physicians for human rights internationally towards the end, I guess, of our first decade involved a deep partnership with colleagues in Turkey. And Turkey is a country where torture has been widespread and systematic for decades and Physicians for Human Rights' earliest work focused on the medical and psychological consequences of torture. We decided in about 1994 to travel to Istanbul and meet some of our Turkish colleagues who were organizing through the Turkish Medical Association to document torture and try to hold the perpetrators of torture accountable in Turkey. And for uh, many years after that, we worked very collaboratively with these amazing Turkish doctors who, together with Physicians for Human Rights, launched the what is now the international standard for the prevention and documentation of torture known as the Istanbul Protocol, appropriately because it launched there, if you will. But some years ago, as part of this long-term collaboration, I was asked by the colleagues at the Turkish Medical Association to travel to southeastern Turkey, which is the Kurdish area of Turkey, just north of the Syrian border, to attend a trial of a Turkish doctor who had been charged under anti-terrorism legislation for treating injured protesters in his little town, in the mountains north of the Turkish capital uh, of the region of Kurdistan, which is Diyarbakir. And so I agreed to go as an international delegate representing Physicians for Human Rights on this trip. And I traveled to Istanbul, and then to flew to Diyarbakir, and met with these amazing Turkish doctors. And we got on buses. There were about sixty Turkish doctors who had traveled to this little village from all over Turkey to go to a tiny little courthouse and watch this trial, and to be there as a as a presence to as, as witnesses, if you will, but also to put pressure on. On these judges who had been appointed somewhat very arbitrarily uh, many of them without much background to to adjudicate a case like this and it was amazing because we sat in this little courtroom it it was scary for me as an american during you know the syrian border was right over there we could see the barbed wire the conflict in syria was already going on there were numerous military checkpoints And of course, being with an American human rights organization, I had to be quite careful about what I was doing there. And in the end, we all got in, we sat in this very crowded little courtroom and the prisoner who was this amazing doctor, very courageous, had been already in detention for several years, came onto a TV screen. So he was brought in from the prison remotely on TV. And three witnesses came in, were brought in by the prosecutor, and each one said on the stand, and they were young guys, that they had been tortured into alleging that this doctor had colluded with terrorists or something. And it was really shocking, and in the break, we all sitting around having coffee, waiting to be allowed back in the court for the judgment, said, well, this is, this is a slam dunk, this guy's definitely gonna be released because there's no evidence here. And these people were forced to make these accusations. And we came back in and we heard the judgment and they said, well, we don't have enough evidence. We're gonna keep the doctor in prison until we get more evidence. And the mother and the daughters were in the front room and they just broke down sobbing. And it was, it was just so dramatic and, and so wrenching to see this kind of injustice and to have traveled this far feeling that maybe we could do something. I will say that a year or two later, indeed this doctor was released, but I felt also very privileged to be able to to be in that courtroom and to travel with these Turkish doctors who are so dedicated to protecting their colleagues, but also to defending the human rights of people who are demonstrating for human rights, and it—it's uh, probably one of the most memorable trips because it was so difficult and so remote and so far off the news media screens, if you will. So that was one story.
0: So in psychology, we talk about circles of empathy. You know, most people care about themselves and their family, maybe their extended family if they're lucky. But uh, it seems like one of the impediments to human rights work is to get enough people to expand their circle of empathy, to include people that are far away or not like them. And in the work that you do, it sounds like you've had to expand, or maybe you did that as a child is to expand your own circles of empathy, to really care about people just for being people wherever they may be. And I'm wondering if, is, is there kind of the dark side of having that kind of empathy in terms of, of having secondary or even tertiary trauma? Uh, listening to all these uh, stories. I mean, the, the list of, of human rights situations that I uh, listed earlier on is just, each one is so painful and so uh, so awful.
1: Well, it's a really important question. And, and of course, in my field, we get asked that a lot, especially those of us who, who stick around for a long time as I have. And, uh, and psychologists do ask me this a fair amount actually over the years. How do you cope with this? How can you stand hearing these stories day after day? And, and I will say, and it's illustrated by the story I just told you, that there's this incredible exhilaration and solidarity that you feel. I mean, being in Diyarbakir first at this medical conference where this Turkish Medical Association, which works for human rights, and where there are people literally risking their lives who you're, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with them and they've hired a bus and lawyers and they're going through the mountains in these little twists and turns to sit in a courtroom. It's, you come back from something like that, even if there isn't an immediate victory and you just feel inspired and exhilarated. And and for me, that's what keeps me going. The second piece is, and I learned this from one of my former directors at Amnesty International, a, a great act, activist, Larry Cox, who, who said, you know, If I get to the stage in this work where I feel numb when I hear these stories of human rights violation and trauma, that's a day that I will quit. He said, you have to be able to feel the emotion and at the same time, not let it overwhelm you to the point where you you can't function. And I, I, I guess since my earliest, days that I can remember, I, like many of us have read books about wars, about the Holocaust, about trauma, about human rights violation. And I feel even when I read the daily newspaper or read the news about what's going on in the world, that if I didn't connect to it, I would not be an aware person. I grew up in a family that was you know we had four newspapers that came into our house every morning and and i never wanted to shut myself off from the cruelty uh that human beings are able to exert on other human beings nor the passionate empathetic response and i feel just hugely privileged each and every day to be able to to work in this space and to respond to these issues. But if I didn't have some kind of hope that there could be change, I think I would turn away from it. And I'm sure that's true of most of us.
0: Before we uh, go on, I just wanted a quote from an obituary from the New York Times of Jack Geiger, who was one of the founding members of PHR and also of the Physicians uh, for um, Social Responsibility. He said that he felt it was our right and responsibility as doctors to treat hunger, poverty and disparities in healthcare as directly and openly as we treat pneumonia or appendicitis. So that sort of speaks to the why doctors in a sense. And I I remember um, there was another part of the obituary that talked about his diverting of funds when he was working down south. And I think it was in Mississippi where he was diverting medical funds to feed people and it was it was discovered and he was put under pressure to stop doing that and he says well was, according to my medical textbooks the best treatment for for malnutrition is, is is food
1: that's a story that jack geiger used to tell every time he spoke to medical students it's a classic story he's he called it rx for food but it was actually a us-sponsored program down south and jack uh, found that many of the families that they were there to serve with a small uh, community, he, Jack was the founder of the community health center movement in the United States, really a great, great visionary and amazing human rights advocate who worked for most of his 90 years as an incredible human rights activist. Right. And
0: I think that was the first African American, uh, health facility in that area.
1: Yes. And so when he saw that, the biggest health problem was malnutrition. They started writing these little chits for the grocery store. And then when U.S. investigators came from Washington to look at their program, he said, what are you doing? Uh, you know, diverting funds. And that's when he, he gave that retort. But Jack uh, understood he was, first of all, an a clinical doctor by training, but who who early on went into public health and social medicine. And he was one of the great teachers of social medicine in in the United States throughout the 20th, through much of the 20th century, certainly the second half. And Jack understood that prevention and protection of human rights was a critical component of supporting the right to health. And as we've seen during the COVID pandemic, the failure to invest in public health and to invest in uh, notions of equity, uh, not only in the United States, but globally has not only been immoral, but has created increased vulnerability and exposure
0: for everyone,
1: the world. And we're seeing this most dramatically right now as this week when we're talking, the world is going back into huge uh, crisis and, and many places lockdown because of the failure to globally vaccinate everybody.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping to get to to that a little more later in the interview, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about about, uh, Jack Geiger. There was, I guess, a a documentary film, a short documentary made about him, about his work called Out in the Rural, about that first community health center in Mississippi. And uh, he he said, I've never seen any use in what I call the the Schweitzer bit. Uh, referring to the humanitarian Dr. Albert Schweitzer, which is the idea that you stand around in whatever circumstances, laying hands on people in in the traditional medical way, waiting until they're sick, curing them, and then sending them back unchanged into an environment that overwhelmingly determines that they're going to get sick. He also made a really interesting point about how using the umbrella of healthcare is a way of changing conditions in a way that might not be possible if you we're advocating for social justice directly, sort of an indirect uh, approach. Uh, he said, I don't know if some of the Mississippi white power structure cares about dead black babies or not, but if they don't, even if they can't afford to say so publicly, we have been able to enter and to do things under the general umbrella of health that would have been much harder to do if we'd said we were here for economic development or for social change per se. Thought that was really interesting in terms of tactics. So he was also a tactician as well as a a moral force.
1: He was a brilliant tactician, and and you'll be interested to know that he's also a journalist. I think part of his brilliance was that he not only understood medicine and public health and the social determinants of health deeply, but he could speak and write brilliantly. He paid his way through medical school by working part-time as a medical reporter for I think it was the United UPI at the time. At any rate, uh, this point is is so critical because first of all, through the community health center movement in Jack's case, which Jack inspired, and there's actually uh, the, the Gibson, the Geiger-Gibson Community Health Center uh, here in Boston, which is named after Jack and also his, his great colleague, Count Gibson. But also through the work of Physicians for Human Rights, we absolutely relied on that i don't know if you'd call it a tactic but that understanding that health professionals had unique access to enter into very fraught let's say political environments by virtue of being doctors so from our very first investigations when physicians for human rights sent american doctors down to chile after the uh, head of the chilean medical association the two heads, actually, the secretary general and the director were arrested because they protested torture under the Pinochet regime. We sent doctors to protest. And unlike the denial of access to other human rights activists, because these people were doctors representing, let's say at the time, American medicine, they were allowed in. They were able to talk to very high level Chilean officials and these doctors were released. But similarly, or maybe not quite similarly, but when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and worked alongside Afghan allied troops associated with one of the most notorious warlords, General Dostum, there was a Physicians for Human Rights team that went to northern Afghanistan and tried to find out what was happening to detainees or people who were surrendered uh, to these forces, assuming that they were likely not to be treated well uh, or possibly even killed. And because our delegation had a doctor with it, she went to the entrance of this prison in the middle of nowhere in Northern Afghanistan and said, I'm a doctor, I'm coming in to look at these prisoners. Can you let me in? And the warden, was so worried about the detainees in this jail who were dying daily of infectious disease and malnutrition and exposure to cold that he opened the doors wide and she went in, took photographs, interviewed some of these people, saw the horror inside that place. And we were able to immediately report it to the world. And within days, this situation uh, was remedied. And we saw over the decades countless times where doctors by virtue of addressing human rights as a medical issue had unique access i can think of dozens of times where we as physicians for human rights had really some of the first entry points into countries that had formerly been completely closed to human rights investigators uh, because we were medical because we were concerned about the health and well-being of individuals because they had that medical hat, if you will.
0: Right. So you have the individual witnessing of a doctor and then disseminating that information. And you also have the witnessing that you did of the trial. And then you have the just the effect of, of the media that once once these things are, are uh, exposed. I'm wondering, so that's a great example of, of a situation that was ameliorated rather quickly once it was exposed. I'm wondering: Are there other situations that are just so intractable that eventually, PHR decides to sort of pull out, just not not because of this cause isn't worthy, but just because it's just impossible. And and that that kind of relates to a, a, another question I may as well throw in, and that's that: How do you choose? I mean, there's so many awful situations going on simultaneously in the world all the time. There's there's no way that even a, if your organization was 10 times its size, that you wouldn't have to pick and choose where to intervene. So I guess the question is, where do you intervene? And is one of the parameters deciding where it's possible to actually have an impact?
1: It's a really good question, and we struggle with this constantly, as you have assumed. I will say that there are some places we've never even tried to engage in because with our skills and our abilities, we decided that the situation was beyond our capacity. And that would include, for example, North Korea, even China, to a great extent, we've had great difficulty trying to figure out what we could do effectively there as an organization, especially with lack of access.
0: Yeah, I, I noticed uh, in the list of of countries, and it was, I think, 48 uh, countries, I think they're listed on on the, Physicians for Human Rights website, that China and the the Uyghur situation is not one of them.
1: Right. And that's because much of our work relies on direct access, where we as clinicians, as an organization of clinicians, can bring something unique to the effort. And in many cases, it involves us having direct contact and direct ability to document physically psychologically the violations by direct interaction now the situation has evolved dramatically in the last few years as we've learned especially during the COVID pandemic that we can do very rigorous documentation remotely but that also requires us not to endanger the people that we're interacting with so in the case of the uyghurs there would be many hurdles for us to get direct documentation That being said, we've done in places where we didn't have access, for example, when the Kurds were attacked using chemical weapons by Saddam Hussein, they fled into southeastern Turkey. And we were able to send a delegation to southeastern Turkey over those same mountains that I traveled years later, when no other governments were allowed into Iraq. So we are able to sometimes do that kind of remote work. But going back to your question about you know, how do we pick and choose? And are there situations where we just sort of threw in the towel or gave up? One thing that I've learned, and I think this is something that I've been able to contribute to the thinking within my organization because I've been there so long as new people come and go is the patience to wait. So a lot of our work over the decades has been documenting, atrocities, war crimes that sometimes even rise to the level of genocide. And so, for example, we engaged as deeply as we could in documenting the genocide by the government of Omar al-Bashir in Sudan against the Darfuri non-Arab populations in Darfur, in the province of Darfur, and many of your listeners may recall the Save Darfur campaign. And at some point, that campaign fizzled because people thought there was just no way that they could address the crisis in Sudan. The regime was dug in decades of horrible, devastating, corrupt, and violent leadership in Khartoum. But Physicians for Human Rights documented in great detail the destruction of hundreds of villages, the killing of livestock, the poisoning of wells, the rape of women, And we did three or four really important investigations back in the mid 2000s and then we thought okay there's nothing more we can do but we have this evidence and now lo and behold just in the last few years there has been a huge outpouring of dissatisfaction by the Sudanese population that eventually resulted in the toppling of Omar al-Bashir and there is now even though there was a new coup recently, there's, it's a, a bit of a complicated situation, but in the last few years, there is talk of sending Omar al-Bashir, the former dictator of Sudan, to The Hague to stand trial at the International Criminal Court, and Physicians for Human Rights Evidence is there at that court. And that is decades almost now, like more than 16 years, Waiting for an ability to prosecute these kinds of crimes. Now, that's not the same as stopping them. But what we've seen, which has been so inspiring in a place like Sudan, is how doctors have been leading the opposition, have been leading the cry for human rights, have been out in the streets, again, risking their lives because they understand the importance of human rights to the lives and well being of their fellow Sudanese and that is sort of a perspective that we have and we have had to pick and choose so most of the time we try to select situations where we have the ability to either document extremely well and complement what other human rights groups are doing or where we think we can actually make a difference by bringing our expertise and voice to the table and sometimes it's in a small way and sometimes it's a big it's in a big way
0: so it's kind of like a, the uh, magnified scale of of medical triage that you you save the people that are savable, and unfortunately, if you don't have enough resources to go around, then the people that are going to die anyway, you you unfortunately can't help them. I don't. That's a kind of a crude, crude way, crude way of putting it, but I mean, it's not an exact analogy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're as self-aggrandizing to think that we're really the ones that have made the difference. I will say what what I've seen that's remarkable in, in my decades of work in human rights is the growth and strengthening of the human rights movement, and especially those close on the ground closest to the situations who have really developed deep expertise in documentation, advocacy. A lot of our work nowadays is training and build what we call capacity building so that we can transfer whatever we've learned locally. And we've done that, I will say, particularly deeply in the Democratic Republic of the Congo with our work documenting sexual violence. And going back to the story about Jack Geiger, I I wanna mention one of the other most inspiring doctors that I've interacted with over the years, another Nobel laureate, Dr. Denise Mukwege, who is a gynecologic surgeon who was planning to work in delivering babies, but ended up having to deal with the massive crisis of mass rape in his country during the brutal conflicts of the mid-2000s in the Congo, which resulted in, by some estimates, as many as 3 million dead. And he ended up treating hundreds, now thousands, of survivors of sexual violence, extremely brutal sexual violence committed by a range of perpetrators in the militias as well as the as the Congolese military and came to the similar conclusion to Jack Geiger saying, I'm treating these women and I'm sending them back to their villages. And he, he developed a term called, which is a horrible term called re-rape, which meant that a woman would get, or a girl raped again and again. And he felt really powerless as a doctor in terms of what he was doing. So the first time that we met him was when he came to Physicians for Human Rights and he said, look, I don't want to keep treating people and sending them back. I ne- We need to work together to stop the whole situation. And part of that, in his view, was ending the impunity for the perpetration of these crimes. And we, Physicians for Human Rights, developed sort of a whole series of forensic trainings where we work connecting doctors, lawyers, police, judges, and have seen now the success of the doctors on the ground working together with well-intentioned and trained law enforcement, as well as uh, judges who have increasingly been trained to understand the evidence of sexual violence and that it's beyond sort of this understanding that you know if you don't have something in 72 hours, you have no evidence. And that's uh, a misunderstanding of evidence in sexual violence cases that Physicians for Human Rights has been uh, working to overturn for for a long time. And we've seen now numerous cases of trials where perpetrators of these mass crimes have indeed been held accountable as a result of this deep collaboration, but also led by the inspiration of Dr. McQuagie, who decided that he needed to use his voice in international arenas all over the world to speak out for these survivors, to empower the voices of these women and girls, and also to demand justice. In the political arena too.
0: So, with this last segment, I think it would make sense to talk about the current work with the vaccine equity, which I imagine is taking up a lot of your time. And I think what would be probably most interesting—I think it's pretty well known that there's certainly strong voices that say that we, that vaccines should be more available uh, worldwide. That there should the patents should be suspended in order to make that happen. What I'm really curious about, though, is how. Your organization goes about it. I mean, how does it persuade the powers that be to release the patent, for instance, to ramp up production? I mean, it, it, the solutions seem so obvious and, but they're not happening. And I guess why aren't they happening, and what is the physicians for human rights trying to do about it and And how?
1: The challenge of vaccine equity is is massive, and the only way that we're going to bring about change is by working collaboratively with dozens and dozens of other actors and organizations and so physicians for human rights among other things has joined a a campaign called the people's vaccine campaign which was initiated by groups like public citizen oxfam international partners in health directed by paul farmers well-known activist doctor in Boston as well, and many, many other organizations. And so, like the campaign to ban landmines, in order to make the kind of change that's required to get pressure on the pharmaceutical industry, for example, which is enormously powerful, and not usually open to sharing their technology or transferring recipes let's say for the vaccine will require a movement. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of time. And we've already seen the terrible impact of the failure to gain vaccine equity around the world. And unfortunately, the situation that we're dealing with now, which we describe as vaccine nationalism, is something that people in every country are also responsible for, you and me, citizens who are mostly focused on their family, their, you know going back to these circles of empathy, their community and their country. And so we have this hoarding that's gone on from the earliest days, as well as a failure of leaders, including President Biden and other leaders in European countries where some of the vaccine pharmaceutical industry is, is based, to enforce what is the right thing to do, which is to assure that patents can be temporarily lifted. And things like the Defense Production Act can be mobilized. As President Biden, this very week, used the Defense Production Act to force the production of testing for Americans, could have done the same thing early on for masks, didn't happen, that would have been under Trump, could have used this also to enforce much greater production of the vaccines as well as distribution. Now, I would say that the pressure of this campaign so far has resulted in increased generosity by major governments. And It needs to continue and grow, and many medical voices have been brought together by this movement already. There are probably many discussions that I'm not even aware of among top epidemiologists and virologists and infectious disease experts who are speaking to top leaders in many countries about the necessity now to vaccinate the world in an equitable way. And that involves not only the production but also the ability to distribute the vaccine of course to get shots in the arm and again it illustrates the failure of the world and world leaders to invest in global public health systems and that as well as personnel and we noted this and many of the aids activists noted this back in the 90s and early 2000s when we were working on global aids and i think there are lessons that have been learned from that effort unfortunately have not been disseminated and adopted around the world in terms of tactics one of the things that physicians for human rights has done is to reach out to a huge network through contacts that we have of nobel laureates in medicine for example who have rallied around and made these sorts of calls and i think like any campaign, you need people who are experts, who are leaders, who are distinguished, who are celebrities, who have access to people in power at the top, top level, and you need a citizen's movement or people's movement. And that's why we call this the people's vaccine campaign. And my hope is that in the face of Omicron, that this these concepts will hit home, that people will understand that we are in today's world not only in the face of the COVID pandemic, but in almost every human rights issue, we are inextricably interconnected and interdependent. And that's why the principles of human rights that go back to the Universal Declaration that former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was so responsible for having drafted that are principles that came out of the United States that support the most fundamental notion that every human being has the right to dignity, to achieve his or her, their full human potential, must be core values of every government and must be core values of every human being. Because when your human rights are violated, or someone in South Africa's human rights are violated because they did not have access to the vaccine or to proper health care, it also affects me and now with the pandemic we realize this in the most profound way
0: right we're more interdependent with each other than ever before just the level of travel the transmission is so rapid i'm wondering have you noticed along the way with these efforts obstacles that you didn't realize were there because you know because again it seems like the desired results is fairly easy to agree upon, which is to ramp up production, to get the vaccine everywhere as quickly as possible. There seem to be all kinds of political and bureaucratic hurdles. Maybe some of it is even technological hurdles about how quick it it is to create a new pharmaceutical factory, for instance. Um, Are are there kind of obstacles that you didn't realize were there before you started this work?
1: Well, I think we've always known that the the core obstacle of political will and being able to be a true visionary leader is that's always there let's say but the other obstacles do have to do with the increasing control of business and industry in everything that affects our lives and so while governments historically in the in the understanding of who's responsible for both human rights violation, but also protecting rights are key. Business is key. And we haven't figured out how to exert the necessary leverage on, on business, partly because it's it's so murky and partly because it's so powerful. So I think that's, that's one thing. I don't think it's a new lesson. We've always known that. But at Physicians for Human Rights, mostly we've been working on on government obligations. And now in this People's Vaccine Campaign, we have to figure out how do we actually influence the Modernas and the Pfizer BioNTechs of the world and, and who who exerts pressure on them to understand that something like a vaccine, the benefit of science must benefit all humanity. And that's something that uh, we understand the the Nobel laureates that shared in the prize for the polio vaccine and decided that it should be a public good understood. Not, and unfortunately, in today's world, that's not what's happening with this. But secondarily, I think the obstacle that's been most disturbing and shocking to us at Physicians for Human Rights is the distortion of the notion of human rights by those individuals and people, and as well as even shockingly, some medical voices who are vaccine resistant or anti-vaxxers or purveyors of misinformation and disinformation. I think a huge, uh, and this isn't really so much about vaccine equity as it is about actually getting vaccinated or wearing a mask, the notion that individuals have an absolute right to do whatever they want to do in the face of an emergency like this is, is so wrong. And it's completely antagonistic to the understanding of human rights, because with human rights come responsibilities. And that's baked into the Universal Declaration. The last few articles, articles 29 and 30, talk about the rights and responsibilities, and in particular, that no one, by exerting their rights, has the right to infringe on another person's rights.
0: my, My ability to swing my arm ends at your nose, right?
1: Exactly. And, and unfortunately, that holds very true in the context of people who refuse to be vaccinated or are advocating against vaccination. They are actually harming your rights and my rights and other people's rights. And that's why we, to, to some extent, why we have these variants. It's on the one hand, the failure of governments to share the vaccine equitably, and to invest in whatever is necessary to transfer all that technology all the way from the production point to, to shots in the arm. But it also is a failure of the understanding of my responsibility to another human being in terms of protecting them and protecting their rights.
0: I mean, it's really interesting that there's a uh, two completely separate sets of obstacles, one of which is dictatorial leader is violating human rights, but then you have the average person not really understanding what it means, you know, to care about each other. And that the two of them together is really quite a lethal combination.
1: And I mean, that's why, for me, the responsibility for protecting our rights falls on every human being. And it's something that Eleanor Roosevelt understood deeply at 10 years after the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights on December 10th, 1948, when she delivered a very famous speech called In Your Hands, where she said, you know, we can't rely on governments to defend our rights. We, human rights, have to be defended in every home, neighborhood, community, place where you live, place where you work, by us, by civil society. And in a way, that sort of sparked... It's the underpinning of the whole human rights movement that that we're we're part of, uh, and the and the notion that you you have to claim these rights as people. You can't just expect governments to deliver them just because they signed a bunch of documents saying that they will.
0: Right, but we're talking about not just human rights. We're talking about cultural values that underpin human rights. And I don't know if that's something that's beyond the purview of the Physicians for Human Rights. Is how do you somehow influence the the political dialogue in uh, social media and 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 other places to help people to understand values matter and that the values can be life-affirming or or the opposite it's that seems like a really (laughs) enormous enormous task and i don't know how uh, you would even go about it it just seems just impossibly difficult
1: It's a heavy lift. And I think for us, at least, our window into that or a pathway is through health and science. And then it goes back to this understanding that Jack Geyer had about the community health center. You know, nobody wants to be sick for the most part. And so when you think about what it takes to protect your health, it does eventually lead to the protection of all of these rights. But you, you have this pathway through science and medicine. And that's why during the COVID pandemic at Physicians for Human Rights, we've, we've used this slogan, let science lead. When people understand that we're all bound by this inextricable web of connection that at its core requires us to be able to wake up every day and move around and breathe. Uh, and without that, we can't do anything. Health has a very interesting, somewhat apoliticized way in to these very difficult conversations
0: ought to be apoliticized. <laughs> Maybe is what you meant to say.
1: Well, yes, the language of medicine and health should be a, a way to sort of convince each and every human being that it's something they should value and they need. And in order to get it, you have to protect other people, <laughs> and especially that's true in the case of infectious disease. But it's also in the case of supporting healthcare workers and enabling. Information to be shared when there is a pandemic or when there is a health crisis. Uh, and that requires open communication, that requires freedom of the press, um, and on and on. And I've done these courses uh, or classes at medical schools for years where I ask the students, tell us what are the rights that are most important to you? And they, you know, right to vote, right to speech, right to religion, da, da, da. and you list them all up. And I have done many exercises where you can do a direct link from almost every human right to health. And it's a challenge of, I think for all of us, of trying to understand that that human rights are basic ideas, but needs that everybody has if you start to think about it. But there is a big education hurdle here.
0: Well, and this is something that goes, I think, beyond science and where it's just outside of science and that's and that's values and it's, Heartening that at least there's widespread agreement about what those values need to be in terms of you know the basic human rights and you know of course there's going to be some fuzzy areas here and there but overall I think there is widespread agreement among many quite different cultures and and that means that there's a, a kind of a direction to to pull toward uh, together.
1: It's true and you know I mean one of the big divides going back to culture is sort of the the prioritization of the individual which is so American. Versus community or collective rights, which some of the Asian countries, in particular China, sort of espouse as as, op- as as if they're opposed to individual rights. But I will tell you that from everywhere in the world, every regime, every ideology, when people's own rights are violated, they're not happy. <laughs> and whether it's physical or psychological, whether it has to do with your freedom of movement, your access to basic human needs, when those are denied, you will rise up. And we've seen that time and time again, eventually. And, and that's where my hope lies, that this deep human value, if you will.
0: Well, I wish we had more time to really parse that out because I think it's a fascinating question. We could probably spend a whole hour just on that. But uh, thank you so much, uh, Susanna Sirkin, the Director of Policy and a Senior Advisor at the Physicians for Human Rights, where she's worked for uh, since 1987. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In.
1: It's my pleasure. And thank you for this very uh, illuminating conversation.
0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.